Welcome back to the Bad Christian Podcast. Two episodes in a week because why not? You know, we're living in a streaming culture. We're living in the moment. Uh, I guess you could tell that we just do a lot of stuff online. It's kind of like Toby and I do our life uh, online. We try to do it. I guess we're part of what I would call the authenticity movement or something like that. Uh, we just like to be expressive and live how we're doing. We connect with each other over the Internet and figure it's a good thing to connect with more people and get the feedback and the learning and get ideas and conversation out there. Uh, that song you just heard is a song we did last week for our band Emery. Uh, so each week we're just making new music, we're having new conversations, and we're showing that stuff on the podcast and on our other show called Are You Listening, which is where we get together with Devin and usually a musical guest and we collaborate on a song. So we're going to be taking this week off of that. Uh, Toby specifically just left for vacation, but before he left we had the opportunity to talk to Jamar Tisby, who we've had on the podcast before, who has a terrific book. Uh, called The Color of Compromise that came out last year. And uh, we were lucky enough to get his time today. He's really busy. He's got a lot of stuff going. His book is blowing up. So we were thankful for that opportunity and thought, why don't we record it today and share it today? So this is what you get. Maybe we'll put out episodes more often in the main feed if it works out that way. But we're just going to do whatever comes natural to us. You know, not we're not big on living by the rules. So whatever feels good, we'll just do it. And uh, today's show is sponsored by Hymns. What is a common issue that men face but don't want to talk about? Think about it. Think long and hard. Try Hymns today by starting out with a free online visit. Just go to forhymns.com slash bcpod. That's forhymns.com slash bcpod. It's funny because I've been I've been watching the doc and I'm so used to you with way more hair. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking today I need to get some new uh, headshots so people aren't freaked out. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Jamar, thanks for coming back on the podcast. We're glad to talk to you again. Oh, are you kidding? This is great. I appreciate y'all. Well, yeah. I mean, especially now, it's been a busy time, possibly or probably for you. I really don't know, but I guess I'm curious just off the bat uh, what it's like having being in this space already and having your book come out last year and be doing this kind of thing and then it, the whole culture just laser beams in right on what you are doing and have been focusing on so much you know and your book dan coke our friend told, uh said it cracked the top 100 on amazon yeah it was in the top 50 at one point yeah that's crazy congratulations i mean Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, guess. I don't know uh, if that's right to say or not, but that's I, I'm really I'm really glad for your work and the stuff you're doing to be out there. It, I, I guess on the national stage and the national conversation now, is that is this where we are? Yeah, something like that. Uh definitely much wider uh readership, but not not only the book, but uh we had a video teaching series that re- we recorded. It was already available on Amazon Prime, but it was one of those things where you had to pay additional costs. Well, we switched it to now it's included in your subscription. So if you've got an Amazon Prime subscription, you can watch the video teaching series for The Color of Compromise. It's a series of uh, 12, 20 minutes or so videos uh, based on the content. You don't have to have read the book, but the book is a nice companion to it. So that's also um, given a lot of a lot more people exposure to the work. And I just think this this, you know learning history, knowing the history 
is so vital as mm-hmm. we try to unpack this present moment. So I'm, you know, you asked how it felt. It's it's extremely it's it's disorienting because the book came out a year and a half ago. It's having sort of a revival or a renaissance now in terms of people accessing it, which I'm really grateful for. But at the same time, the circumstances obviously are not ideal. But you know, that's that's the work. Um, and so just really running, trying to keep up with, uh, you know, folks asking good questions. Um, a lot of folks are late <laughs> to the conversation, <laughs> yeah. but hey, I'm glad you're here. And so uh, just just trying to keep up with all of that. Is your... I, I, Go ahead, Toby. Well, that's what I was going to say. I, that's the way I feel. I feel like I'm late. I've missed stuff. I've turned my eyes for too long. That's, that, like, that, that sentiment is what I've been feeling so much of... Uh, I mean, it, it, it's almost in a in a terrible way. You wrote a book that is so right now, and it, somebody like me didn't probably delve deep enough into it a year and a half ago. Like you were saying something, and in some sense, I mean, do you even feel like it was even warning of some of the stuff that was c- to come that we're living through now? Do you even feel that way? Like you're being in some way like forecasting the future because you were telling us about our past? Yeah, I don't know if the book did that, but I certainly had that sense. I mean, y'all know what it's like living in the South. Uh, what I tried to, I, I try never to exceptionalize the South in terms of its racism, because as we well know, bigotry has no, no boundaries. This is all over the country, it's all over the world. But from me, I, got, I grew up in the Midwest. What was different about the South was the proximity to all the racial history. And so I go to school, uh, getting a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi, which means my commute is literally through cotton fields. That's not an experience I had growing up in the Chicagoland area. Um, There's a Confederate cemetery in my town uh, because this actual town was the site of not only a a Civil War battle, but um, a Union fort. And so that history is very present. Uh, James Meredith, who integrated the University of Mississippi and who uh, did this, started this one man march against fear in 1966, the second day of which he was shot, uh, survived, but shot. He was in my Sunday school class in Jackson, Mississippi, right? So the proximity of that brings it, you know, it leaves it constantly in your face. And because it's constantly in your face, I feel like it's, it's, easier not to have any illusions about how far the United States has come in terms of race and, and how far it still has to go. So when something like this happens, it's not a complete surprise, but uh, you know, nobody could have actually predicted this moment. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, when you're studying history and talking about our history and like that, I think you're right. The South is, I've always had this real discomfort with, with, when I'm not in the South, I have a Southern accent. I live in Seattle, and so everybody's always telling me it's just always forefront of a conversation. I'm a Southern guy, no matter where I go, whatever I do. And it's you know, for 20 years I've been not in the South, and I've always had this real discomfort of the disconnection that people in other regions have from that part of history. You know, in the South, I mean, it's so everybody in my middle school was so aware of racism and what it was and not even on the necessarily the good side of it. I mean, it's a very racist environment that I grew up in, but it was very 
front and center. Like people are very aware of it and the divide and that the cultures really were different. You know, you would have race fights break out at my high school, for instance. I mean, that mm-hmm. was just, it was a part of the, it was already, it was already, there's something familiar about now that I can remember from being a kid in, in, in a way that I just feel that like a lot of the country has didn't really that is less in touch with if i try to even explain or describe it five years ago or 10 years ago it seems like they just really didn't have the historical sense of it that's that's i I mean i would i would completely agree with that like i said as a kid growing up in the midwest and a black guy we were aware of race especially around police which we can get into in this conversation but um it, it, it is such a tangible part of the culture in the South, in a way, and, and 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 this is to say, like other parts of the country, we anesthetize ourselves and we distance ourselves from um, U.S. racism because it's not as in your face, and then and then we absolve ourselves yes. of of any involvement in it. When in reality, if you look even at just the most recent events, this is across the country. You got stuff happening in Central Park in in New York with the black guy who. Who's uh, 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 bird watching and has the police called on him? Right. Uh, you have you have incidents going on in California, in in Portland, in in Seattle, all of these places. And so obviously it's not just a southern thing. But if you're not physically located in the South, you can sort of more easily deceive yourself that it's not a problem or a persistent problem where you are. Um, so yeah, I, I actually think it's a gift uh, to be doing this work in an area like the South. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, cause I'll say this, I'll say this, not, not just the sort of, um, physicality or presence, uh, reminders of race, but also in the places where there has been the greatest, um, levels of racism, there's also been the greatest levels of resistance to racism. Right. Yes. And so meeting activists or being around people or learning about the history of folks like Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer, that's been incredibly inspiring as well. One thing that's weird about it, too, in that regard, is that the it's almost like in the other regions that uh, that I've been to, it's almost like actively suppressed or you want to feel absolved from it. And they, I, I get the feeling that they think, oh, the South is bad. And they did, as long as we can say that the Confederacy was bad enough, then we're not bad still, if you live in that's wherever right. else right. it is. And there's some pushing off of that scapegoating effect going on, which you sure as hell can't defend, you know, or try to say the South, you can't, you can't say anything about it. And so it, it reminds me of, is like, there's a bias against even acknowledging it in, in a lot of culture. And, uh, that's what you're talking about. Like I was watching the video even today about your book, we were talking about that bombing of the four, where the four black girls died in that. And that's just not a, that's just not a fun history to learn or, or reflect on. So it's just easier to suppress. And so the whole, there's been, it's kind of like the opposite of today which is the comparison I'm looking to draw is we have been suppressing this media or what would have been those videos or that content over all this time. It seems like we've been pu- pulling, holding the rug over a little bit. And now the curtain's been pulled back because here it comes. There's a unlimited media now of exactly what is going on and what's always been there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a moment. Um, 
it's a moment to take advantage of the information age. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Like, 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 they, like this history has never been more accessible in so many ways. Like you don't just have to read a book. You can go on for a while. Netflix, I think, had like a special Black Lives Matter video playlist of all these documentaries and, and different films dealing with race in the, in the United States. Like I, I never would have thought that would happen you know, at any other time besides like Black History Month, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you've got all these ways to access, access this knowledge, which actually puts a, a greater burden and responsibility on people. Because if in this day and age, when, when it's literally at your fingertips, you don't have a certain level of racial awareness, I think there's a culpability to that. I think, I think there's a, a level of um, uh, guilt almost in the sense that, uh, this is clearly a pressing issue. Uh, it has been, but but right now it's at the forefront of a national conversation. And if you're not informing yourself, like actively informing yourself, uh, it's going to have negative and harmful effects. And, and you're responsible for that because there's really no excuse mm -hmm. at this point not to know. There's no excuse. I I, I was going to say watching. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, I, it was so I kind of stumbled upon. I didn't even realize that the color of compromise was on Amazon. And so I've just been watching. I'm about four or five episodes in right now. And I'm just loving it, Jamar. I think it's really great. And I I think the reason I like it so much is it it stirs up a lot of thoughts <laughs> in my mind. One is so it, it is. Uh, one, and I hope you take this the right way. It is entertaining in a sense of I, like I'm engaged. I'm fully watching it going, Oh, what is he going to say next? What is the, you know, what is the next thing I'm going to see? What's the next thing? Cause growing up, like, like Matt said, I guess suppressed is the right word. I didn't hear this stuff. I grew up in South Carolina. I worked, I, you know, uh, I grew up in Greer, South Carolina. I've known about, uh, you know, South Carolina history. Uh, you know, the high school I went to was probably 30 to 40% black. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I've had all these experiences and now it feels like at 44 years old, I'm just learning some stuff. Like mm -hmm. I, I feel like w watching the color compromise, like, uh, I actually went on and looked, uh, what, I, let's see if I can remember his name. I think I wrote it down. You were talking in, on, on, in one of the, I forget which episode it was, but you were talking about, uh, his name was Denmark, Denmark Vesey, right? Yep. You were yep. talking about, and he was in Charleston where I worked at a mega church in Charleston for three years. And my wife worked at that mega church and I never heard the name Denmark Vesey. And this is was so I looked up. My mom is from uh, Bamberg area, and there's a town, real small town there called Denmark. I was like, oh, I wonder if they named him that after Denmark. And then, no, not at all. They did not <laughs> name it after him. There, there is nothing there. Like there is that history was not even close to mm -hmm. ever told to me. And and I started thinking on an, on another level. Like uh, so many people like watching the the 2020 specials where it's this killer who murdered someone and it, did he actually kill his wife or he didn't and I and I really started thinking about this and I and I guess this would be in a sense the the systemic racism and just in in uh, ignorance and in practice of I think people watch that because they go I'm not a killer so I can watch mm, that yes. and be separated from it but when I watch. The color of compromise, I cannot be separated from it. Yeah. Right? Like, like the, my family grew up in the South, and on some level, there was slavery and oppression and uh, racism in my, in my history on, on the white side, <laughs> which, you, you know what I mean? It, and so to, to see that, I cannot separate myself from that anymore. Like, it's not, oh, well, you know, that was just 
you know, but no, no, that's, that's my lineage. And so, uh, in our lineage. And so I, that's why to me, it is so helpful because man, you just go into the history and you're just saying it so clearly. And I am literally learning history, which that mm-hmm. helps me understand so much more because I really feel, it really feels like it, that was, I never even had a chance for that. And, and, and no excuses here, but I'm saying it, I'm shocked now when I go, wait a minute, I didn't know any of this. None of, I mean, what, why we didn't ever talk about that. When you talked about slavery, it was like, you know, real loosely. And, and I, and I'm sure, I mean, you, I, that was my question saying all this. I mean, you're doing something that the educators haven't done. Mm-hmm. Wow. Why don't we do a well, couple understand. nuggets of history there? If you wouldn't mind, why don't you, I don't know who Denmark Vesey is. And then I mentioned the bombing earlier, but I've heard Jamar tell, if you wouldn't mind, why don't we just do those two historical nuggets while we're here? If you wouldn't mind yeah, explaining to me. Sure. Just just a bit of, um, you know, uh, uh, theory first, if you will. Um, white supremacy thrives on invisibility. And so the fact that, you know, you can grow up in South Carolina and, and not know these things is, is actually not by accident. Um, these are stories that people don't tell. And, you know, on one level, it's a, it's a very political decision uh, uh, about, you know, who the victors get to write the history, right? Get to mm-hmm. tell the story. Right. Uh, on another level, it's very personal too, uh, where where I've lived in the South long enough and known um, um, uh, white folks in the South uh, pretty well to say that these are part of their family histories and stories that 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 they're not necessarily proud of and don't want to share. Um, and it's this tension. I'm un- understanding this externally, but it seems to be this tension of like these. This is pop pop. And this is uncle whoever, and this is cousin whatever. These aren't just like historical figures that you can villainize. These are people who, you know, gave you birthday gifts and, you know, help help you buy your first car or whatever it might be. So I understand there's this sort of because of that personal connection. That's also a reason why some of this history doesn't get told. But it must be told because it is the denial of that history. That 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 means that in 2020, we're still having to literally march in the streets and during a pandemic in order to have um, equity around race and uh, 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 practices around policing that don't actually end up with us killed. So all that is preface. Um, Denmark Vesey um, or VC was a, a, a black man who lived in Charleston, South Carolina. He recently came to attention, national attention again, um, after the Emanuel Nine massacre, because Vesey was part of uh, Emanuel AME back in the early 19th century. And um, Vesey led a, uh, a, a revolt of enslaved people that was uh, a, a pretty massive um effort that uh, was ultimately unsuccessful in many ways, but he stands as a figure of black agency and um, self-determination. So that history is just incredible when you think of what that church has already been through. So because in in the wake of that, you know, they burned down the church. Um, So um, that church has already been through a lot. And it was no coincidence that the the terrorist uh, white supremacist who went in and killed nine people, he chose Emmanuel AME, uh, particularly for the reason that it had this long history of black empowerment and, and black freedom in that church. Um, 
And then I think the other uh, episode you you mentioned was the 16th Street Birmingham church bombing. Am I yes? Am I remembering yeah. right? In '63 okay. or something like that. Yes, it was 1963. That was a that was a monumental year. Um, of course, that's when the March on Washington took place and King's "I Have a Dream" speech, and uh, I believe the same year as the letter from a Birmingham jail earlier that year. And so it was a very important um, year in the civil rights movement. But on this particular day, September 15, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, it was the day of the Youth Day Sunday service at 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham. And the four little girls were Addie Mae Collins, uh, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley. They were all 14. And then Denise McNair was 11 years old. So they were... They were in the basement at 16th Street uh, Baptist Church, and they were making final adjustments on their dresses, getting ready for the Sunday service. And uh, that's when the bomb exploded. And the details of that event are just horrifying because you read the reports and it left a hole on the floor five feet wide and two feet deep. Uh, the report said that it actually it, it killed all four girls, but it actually decapitated Cynthia and that her parents only knew it was their little girl because of the shoes she was wearing, and, and there was a ring on her finger that they recognized. Um, also that uh, it, was, it was this really interesting symbolism that the blast had blown out all of the church's stained glass windows except one, and the one that remained intact pictured Christ leading a group of little children. And so, uh, you know, just this like— really deep spiritual connection. But it was this massive event that um, an act of racial terrorism that actually outraged even segregationists. I mean, everybody was mad at this. But I start my book with that um, incident at the, the act of racial terrorism at the 16th Street Baptist Church, because right after that, a young white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. gave this speech in front of this group of uh, young, it was a young men's business club. And he talks about this idea of complicity. He said, who threw that bomb? And he said, the answer was, we all did it. And then goes on to say how the rest of white Birmingham was implicated mm -hmm. in this specific act because they had failed to stand up and speak up and, and walk alongside uh, black people in the midst of all of this uh, racial tension and white supremacy. So that brings us to the the notion of complicity, which is, I think, what Toby was saying a second ago. He says, I grew up this way and that way, and we didn't hear this, and we all denied that. And, uh, you know, that that's an element of we get to this territory of saying everybody's good enough to say, well, I know I'm in my heart I'm not racist, and that has to be good enough. So this is the definitely where I feel like most people are at in the cultural moment is, wait a minute, maybe that isn't good enough, and what are the next steps? But – for sure, if you understand that there's a suppression of information or history, even if it's just convenient or just because it's pop-pop or even if it's an accident, it's just not pleasant to talk about, still, complicity is probably the word for that, right? Yes, yes, I think so. So so right now, uh, a lot of people are using the term anti-racist, and that's important because of what it gets at. And, and, and the analogy that um, I borrow from Beverly Daniel Tatum, who's a social psychologist, is uh, the analogy of a pedway. So, so back before the pandemic, there were these things called airports. Mm -hmm. You could go to the I airport. I remember that. <laughs> in the old days. <laughs> it, was, it was in the old days, yes. So at these airports, uh, they would have these pedways, which are basically human conveyor belts. And you can get on them. 
And, and social psychologists use that as an analogy for racism. So if you're on the pedway and you're actually walking with it, you're, you're going faster than everybody else. The, the equation is that's the active racist. These are the people who use racial epithets. These are the people who want to close the borders because they don't like black and brown people. These are the folks who put on white robes and hoods, et cetera. Now, also on that pedway, you have some folks who are on it, but they're just standing still. And so they're not going necessarily faster, but they're still going in the same direction. Those are passive racists mm -hmm. um, or, or non-racist, but, but you know, you're still participating in a racist system. It just may not be you're, you're actively supporting it, but by your inaction, you're right. supporting it. And then um, you'll never see this in an airport necessarily, but the, what, what anti-racism looks like is if you're on that pedway and you're not running with it, you're not standing still, but you actually turn around and go against the direction of the pedway. That is anti-racism mm -hmm. because you are actively intentionally going against the momentum of society, which is toward uh, racism in, in this racial hierarchy. So if you think of that, then I would say, you know, the vast majority of people are in that passively racist stance, right? It's, it's the extremes that we look at that are the active racists. It's the people who are holding the rope at a lynching. It's Emmett Till's killers. It's uh, people who, who use those racial epithets. And, and, and the problem with that, which I try to highlight in the book, is if that's your only definition, definition of what racism looks like, then you can absolve yourself and say, well, I'm right. not a racist. Mm -hmm. Some of my best friends are black. You know, right. I'm nice to people who are different without ever recognizing that your lack of action intentionality is actually supporting the status quo, which is racist. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I read something today. I see, think somebody tweeted about this, but it kind of brought everything into light to me. Uh, especially with the whole idea, cause I'm sure you've probably heard it a million times. Uh, that was, you know, I didn't own slaves. People will say, I, I hear people say stuff like that as if, oh, it, you know, but those same people will say, I'm definitely held to a standard of sin because, uh, two people ate, ate a piece of fruit along, you know, an apple or something, you know, like, like the first sin I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, you know, because of Adam and Eve, but yeah, but I didn't have anything to do with slavery or whatever, you know, like the, the idea that you could be, and I think probably, I mean, Jamar, do you think that people are, is, is some of the stuff we're dealing with here, are, are they, is it shame? Like the, the idea that you would take on some of that responsibility. Why, why, why are people so, why are they so complicit? Like what, what is the big fear of going, wait a minute, this is a part of my history, my family's history. This is what, what my family did to, to people. What, what is, what do you think causes it? Yeah, that's a, that's a million dollar question right there. And I think it's a multi-layered. Uh, so one layer of it is people live in informational isolation and they have these information ecosystems that are essentially echo chambers that reinforce particular ideas around race. And so I'm just going to name it like if, if Fox News is where you get your main information on current events, you're going to have a really distorted view of race. And if on top of Fox News, you're going to a church where the church leadership doesn't really explicitly take on race other than saying something, uh, what, what King would call uh, pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities, such as, you know, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Like, okay, 
but be specific. <laughs> what does that mean right. for how we live in terms of uh, our racial reality? So if that's your context, and then you got a family that that you know the family members use the N word or or crack jokes, or you were part of a fraternity at school that that did blackface or celebrated the Confederacy, all of that stuff means your ideological bubble is really thick <laughs> and it's gonna be hard to get through that. And, and the reality is for most white people, reading a book's not gonna do it. Uh, getting more information or data or numbers or statistics, not gonna do it. The, the, the main way white folks or folks in the majority in general change is through these personal relationships with people who are different, where if you know Jamar Tisby personally, and I tell you my story of racism, stories, then that might get through. And some of this broader systemic and institutional stuff might start making sense. But that happens so rarely. Um, it's, right. it's, it's really difficult to, to sort of systematize that. Um, that's one reason. Another reason is just the bald fact that white supremacy benefits white people. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, it's it's in a certain very earthly sense advantageous to be white in a white supremacist society, whether you're looking at jobs or health care or your interaction with the police or um, your financial situation. And so a lot of people want to cling to that because to admit to a different reality means to divest of some of the unjust power that you have because of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, that's, that's where this, you know, a lot of uh, white evangelical voters or white voters in general feel that they are, you know, essentially persecuted. And that sense of persecution comes from feeling like uh, racial and ethnic minorities are gaining more rights. And they perceive this as a zero sum game to mm -hmm. where if other peoples are, are gaining equal rights, that means they're losing something. White people are losing yeah. some some rights or some privileges, and and that's a very dangerous, not Christian way of thinking about it. But I think that's what part of what makes it so hard for people to quote unquote get it uh, about race. All right, there's so many things in this life that men just love talking about and telling you about, but I know one that they don't. It's a common issue that a lot of men. Uh, face and go through, and uh, they have to think about it long and hard, if you know what I mean. Forty percent of men by age 40 struggle with not being able to get and maintain an erection. And why do guys turn to those weird solutions that really don't do anything? You know what I'm talking about, gas station, expensive pills or injections. Who wants to get an injection? Seriously. So now's the time to go to 4 It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. I'm telling you. One place, they have it all for you. So, uh, HEMS connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat ED. Uh, they use well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. Prescription solutions backed by science and made more affordable. Seriously. Uh, see the results where every other thing just falls short. It's so easy. Uh, all you have to do is answer a few questions about your medical history and chat with a doctor for com for a confidential review. If you're approved by the doctor, products are shipped directly to your door. That means you don't have to go to the doctor's office. You don't have to do all that. You can be your best and perform your best. Seriously, get rid of that erectile dysfunction. So try HEMS today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to 4 slash 
B-C-P-O-D, that's B-C pod, and that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash B-C pod. That's forhims.com slash B-C pod. Prescription products are subject to doctor approval and require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. You can see the website detail for full details and safety information. Seriously, this could cost hundreds of dollars if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy. So remember, that's forhims.com slash B-C pod. Let's take another step right into that, what you just said. Uh, if you the notion of it being a zero-sum game. If you, there's some people who would say, I mean, okay, and how it's tied up with Christianity is really, really interesting because there are, there is the notion that in an intersectional way, and I don't know all this stuff that well, but this is my understanding, there's some way of looking at intersectional politics and identity politics and a lot of the stuff that comes from the left or farther left where it really is summarized as a zero-sum game of different people groups vying for power, and that's all that there really is underneath it all. Now, that's not the Christian notion, though, but there is the humanistic notion that that, that is the case here, and I'm not so sure that, it, that you know, I mean, are you confident that this isn't a zero-sum game? And if so, is that based in Christianity or based in s- something else? Yeah, I think I think both from an earthly and a spiritual perspective, it's not a zero sum game. Um, so, you know, one sort of concrete example is a question that's been brought up recently from an ethical perspective. Should there be such a thing as a billionaire? Should there be such a thing as a billionaire Christian? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, in, in, in a sense, money is finite. And if you say there shouldn't be such a thing, like nobody should be that rich is, is essentially what's, what's being argued there. You, you can still be a multimillionaire and never want for anything materially uh, without being a billionaire, right? Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, if, if you divest of some of that monetary gain, which is built off of, constantly built off of um, exploiting labor, to some degree, right? To get that rich, somebody else is not being compensated the way they need to be, in my view. Um, others can disagree with that. But the point is, even with something like money, which is viewed as finite, people can still have vast sums of money while acting more justly towards other people. Now, if that's true of something lesser like money. It should be true. It's even more true of something greater like basic civil rights. Like me not being brutalized by police takes nothing away from white people. Me being able to vote without voter suppression in my area or moving polling stations to a very long distance or making uh, uh, federal election days holidays or having them on the weekends as most other Western countries do, that takes nothing away from white people's ability to vote. In fact, it enhances it. And so I think the original zero-sum gamers are white supremacists who say we need to so these people of color don't get what we have and intentionally set it up as this thing is it's either or either we have the power and the privileges or they do and we're in this constant battle this constant struggle against one another without realizing that when one of us gets free all of us get free and that whole principle uh, and I think that's true on a 
you know, basic, a horizontal level as well, well as a vertical level. Well, that's where we're at is the, the you know, if you look at most of human history, you do see groups fighting and vying for power and control. And there'll be times when all the ships rise for a period and then don't or whatever. And so I think some people now are nervous that uh, they, I mean, I'm not saying it's a justified fear, but I think some people are nervous that, that it's the the tables are going to be overturned here and so we are going to lose things you know what if the if, what if democracy just can't work or something like it, it, you know it is it maybe in order to get everybody equal we have to topple the whole system is there's no way to you know i didn't cornell west say that the other day i thought it was like oh man i, I resonate with that so well when i think about all the institutions that drive me crazy school and church uh-huh. and everything i think it can't fix itself uh-huh how yeah. do you sit with that with that quote or that that notion I think I think it starts with realizing um, there was no period where America was great for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this phrase of of make America great again and how it resonated with so many people rests upon this assumption that there was this golden era in U.S. history when society was really working. And many would argue that that we've never lived truly in a democracy. Because at some point, there was always a group excluded or marginalized, even from b- the basic democratic processes like voting, whether that be women, whether that be black women, whether that be black people in general. Uh, so, you know, we have to uh, start with this faulty assumption that, like, the United States is fundamentally sound in terms of its political principles and economic principles, and all we have to do is tweak it. Uh, right. So that it works for everyone, you know. By the end of his life, Martin Luther King was saying we need something like democratic socialism in order to re- redistribute um, economic goods. I mean, it just it is if if you if we really step back and look at this as as best we can because we're so embedded in it as you know people who are born and raised in this country. But if we really step back, we're in the richest country in the history of the planet. And we have homeless people, and we have jobless people, and we have ministries that are scraping by. And with, with fractions of a percent of re- redistribution, so much of that could be alleviated. It really makes no sense. The racial wealth gap between uh, the average, uh, the, the median white household and the median black household is not only large on the order of like 10 times uh, uh, what a, a white household has, what a black household has, but, but it's growing. It's getting bigger. Where we have um, uh, Jeff Bezos might become the first trillionaire in history, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so th- this concentration of wealth, and then even when we're looking at relief packages during the pandemic, still so many tax breaks going to the largest corporations who are going to pay less in, in terms of a percent of taxes than individual households, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the issue of policing, where we're funding police to the tune of billions of dollars for the most sophisticated military-like equipment. And, and then the contrast is like, teachers are using their own money to buy paper and supplies for Skype. I mean, just, yeah. if we really step back and look at this thing without all of the sort of, cultural and political baggage that we all bring to it you i think i think we'll look back and be like what on earth were were we doing yes 
Uh, I agree. If you zoom out, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think they call it the, the, the Rawls experiment or whatever. But if you had to just build the society this way, would you draw a card to inhabit a random, you know, person mm. in this society? Like, would you? You know, if you say, oh, America's great the way it is, the best country ever. Okay, well, you draw a card and you'll just be a random person there. You think it's going to work out very good for you? I don't. I mean, that that's an indictment of the system. That's a good way to, to look at it, at least. There's a, a 40% chance you'll be a black person here. Would that be a good card to draw? Or, or just a poor person, you know, more so. But increasingly, there are more poor people with worse situations. And even more proportionally, black people are, are, are in that. So even if it's not intentional, uh, this is just the way. That, I mean, mass incarceration and the drug war seem to be like the most egregious, obvious one to me that impact black people even the most. And that's, I mean, that that's the most horrific one that at least seems obvious. And then when I go into my capitalistic views... It gets a little muddier, obviously, for me. It's, it's scary to think, consider an idea like democratic socialism, and then I think, well, why is it even? Sc- I, mean, I don't even. I don't even know what I'm talking about at that point. You know, so it's just that's eh, overwhelming. We might as well just keep it the way it is. And then there's there you back. I'm back to complicity. You know. So I just think I think we're in a moment where if we free ourselves from some of that baggage, we can exercise uh, what uh, Walter Brueggemann calls a prophetic imagination. And, 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 and really, like, so much of what we do, if you, if you ask yourself why we do it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or at the very least, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, there's nothing inevitable about how we do policing. Um, there's nothing inevitable about how we do incarceration. That's one of the points I try to bring up in The Color of Compromise, is that really there's nothing inevitable about white supremacy and racism in the sense that we could have chosen differently. We could have made different decisions that led to more equitable outcomes and that this inequality along racial lines is not rooted in some natural order of things. It's rooted in specific decisions that people make either to promote racial equity or to um, advance their own sort of position in the sociocultural milieu uh, in which they find themselves. Uh, And so that's, it's depressing because when you look back, so often people, uh, specifically white Christians, have chosen the status quo or have chosen to promote inequality in various ways. But it's also empowering if you think of the fact that, well, if it doesn't have to be this way, then it can be different. Mm -hmm. And right now we can make different choices. So I am just... um, the other day, somebody asked, we were on a Zoom call and, and they asked us to give, you know, one word to describe how we're feeling. And, and the word I chose was impatient. impatient. Uh, yeah, I, I, am, I am impatient for change. It's long past the time for change. A more positive spin on that is eager. You know, what will become of this moment that feels so different? Uh, I was saying um, uh, in another meeting that if you had told me six months ago, that NASCAR was going to ban Confederate flags from its events, mm-hmm. I would have asked you, what substance are you on? Yeah. And can you share it? Because that's, that's, <laughs> that's wow. A- <laughs> that's, that's, that's a reality-altering thing that right. you're talking about there. So I'm eager to see what may become of this moment when you have uh, gestures like that, which are, you know, time will tell what, what, that, what things like that actually do. But you know, even six months ago, that that wasn't a reality that I would have contemplated as as being, 
you know, in the near future. <laughs> We've certainly put on the social layer, the uh, social pressure layer has now been uh, applied in a way that you can really feel a lot of people being skeptical of, of, of people. Uh, oh, you're, you know, oh, you just, now you get it. There's social pressure. You're going to look bad or you could lose, you know, it, and I, I'm curious how you take that. Is it, is that a hopeful thing or is it a cynical thing or is there room for both sides on that? Uh, that we've got this social pressure that makes people want to at least appear to be on the right side? Or do you think that's genuine? All the brands, all the emails I get from everybody saying we're with it starting today. I mean, <laughs> myself right. included, whatever. I mean, that's just, that's the territory. Well, I, I, I'm really glad you add, asked that. I think it's, a, a, a again, a multi-layered question or response on, on my part. One is... So, so the analogy I use is like fighting racism is a battle, okay? And so, take that iPad out of here. In one sense, I'm happy to have one less enemy. That's great, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, if this person has just joined the battle and they are inexperienced and untrained, then there's a sense in which they become a burden and a liability. And what I think folks have to be careful of is to take this um, sort of newfound loyalty to the cause and not try to immediately become leaders in the cause. And so if, if you're brand new to this battle, great. That means one less enemy to fight. But guess what? You follow my lead. <laughs> so the lead of people who have been on the battlefield for a lot longer. Stay out of the way. Don't cut yourself with your own sword, that kind of a thing. So I think for white folks who are who are you know, finally being vocal about this, good, you know, uh, this is a better position to take than, than something else. But at the same time, reckon, recognize that there have been people who have been doing this work a really long time who you need to continually learn from. And it's not going to be a period of a couple of days or weeks. It's not going to be um, measured in, you know, the, the one or two books you decided to read this month. Uh, it's going to be years. It's going to be years of learning and following. And honestly, I don't think white people should be at the vanguard of the civil rights movement in the 21st century. I think they should stand alongside, but they need to make space for black people and people of color to actually be the leaders in this movement. Because we know um, most personally and most extensively the effects of white supremacy and therefore how to survive it, which, you know, to spiral off into another thing is uh, uh, we have a lot to learn. I think U.S. Christianity, white Christianity, has a lot to learn from the black church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are pastors and churches and congregations that have been, you know, like Emmanuel AME, that have been around for a really long time engaging in this issue. And we need to learn from black churches the things, the blue notes, like how to lament, how to suffer and still be faithful, but also the celebratory notes, like how to be joyful when things ain't perfect, um, how to how to persevere and love and laugh and, and excel when the odds are stacked against you. And until we do that as a church in the United States, um, we're going to see some cyclical patterns here that are very damaging. That, that's a great point that you even make in The Color of Compromise that really struck with me. And I never, once again, never thought about this, never even realized I should or whatever. I I am now in awe that the black church didn't give up on Jesus. 
Right. Like that, I mean, like that is, I mean, that's unbelievable. Like, I mean, the, the tool of Christianity was used against black people and black people found a way to still, uh, not give up on the God that they believed in. I mean, I, that, that is one of the most powerful things. Like, I, I mean, in when, that's when, true. when you were talking about that in, uh, in, uh, on the, the show watching it, uh, I was like, man, I, why wouldn't they, they should have walked away. It's like, I mean, no, they didn't, they didn't give up on God. Like, I mean, how, how powerful of that is that, you know, I mean, it is so powerful that their faith runs that deep, even with oppression. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the power of the gospel, right? Like, uh, right. uh, Jesus is real and, 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 and his word is going to go out no matter what. And I think, I think people saw, I think black people saw the liberatory messages in Christianity and you can't hide it. Right. Yeah. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus's ministry is all about. And so no matter how you try to sort of hide it or downplay it, it's going to be a little something. I believe it's the fingerprint of the image of God on each and every person. And the way I put it is deep down because the image of God can be defaced, but it can never be erased. Right. Mm -hmm. And so historically in the United States, the image of God in black people has been defaced and denigrated. But we always, even if you're not Christian, you have this sense of I matter. I'm worth something. I shouldn't be treated like this. And I believe when people hear uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, many are responding to that, that 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 image of God in them is resonating with the liberatory message of the gospel that's Jesus saying to each and every one of us that you matter, that I'm going to leave my 99 and go after the one because you, you, you matter so much and you're so important to me. And so um, I think that's what's happening. I think that's what's happening. And, and, and the reality is for concrete steps, for people listening, want to know what to do, how to learn from the black church. Look, everybody's going to church online right now. So guess what? You can visit a black church real easy. <laughs> Yeah, really easy. Sunday, feel weird. Really yeah. easy. <laughs> Black church. It don't even have to be Sunday. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are sermons online now, and you can really get a sense and a flavor. I would recommend folks like Charlie Dates up in Chicago. I would represent folks, uh, re uh, recommend folks like John Faison Jr. out in Nashville. I would represent folks like my co-host on Pass the Mic, Tyler Burns down in Pensacola, Florida, uh, uh, Nicole Massey-Martin. There's so many people doing great work out there that, that, again, like we said at the top of the show, there's really no excuse not to know these things. And if you really want to engage and learn from the black church tradition, it's never been easier. Have you, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Anthony Bradley? Yep. He, he went to Clemson, um, which is where we grew up and went That's from. He's a big Clemson fan. So he's somebody yeah, I've followed for a long time. He was, he was in the... I don't know what exact Acts 29 Mars Hill movement, even at some point, maybe 15 years ago, and has really been somebody that has been a really a good follow for me over that period of time as he separated from, from that crowd and called out what has been really corrupt and biased there. So he's somebody that I think is, is pretty terrific um, also in that tradition. He's always talking about uh, black denominations and things the black church gets wrong. I mean, gets right, and the things that you know, he's always pointing that stuff out in a way that I find very, very easy to follow. But I don't even know that much about black denominations. Are there? I mean, there's the AME I'm familiar with, but what are the other traditions that are black churches? And that, and what what are the other ones? 
Yeah, so um, the AME is, is the oldest continuously operating uh, independent black denomination. But right after the Civil War, you see this proliferation of uh, black denominations. Uh, the largest one at this point is the National Baptist Convention. Um, and uh, you also have the Progressive National Baptists, which broke off from the NBC in 1961 in sort of protest to Joseph H. Jackson Jr., who was the president at the time. He really didn't like King's approach to civil rights and direct action, uh, nonviolent activism. So the PNBC uh, uh, broke off from that to sort of be more vocally um, and intentionally active around the civil rights movement. You have Kojic, Church of God in Christ. You have uh, Kachusa, Church of Christ's Holiness. Um, you have a, 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 a plethora of, of other denominations uh, that have sprung up in, in the 20th century as well. But there's a long history. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point because I think right now, you know, as people are looking at this racial moment, a lot of folks are looking to the responses of white Christians and whether they're going to be complicit and compromised as they have so often in the past. But I think the more interesting story is what is coming out of um, black Christian spaces and uh, other churches that are made up of racial and ethnic minorities. I think that's the vanguard of the movement. And if you want to see and learn how to um, engage in activism and be part of the solution, we need to be looking at um, black Christians and, and other people of color. Not each and every one, you know, you got to be discerning, get a variety of voices out there. But uh, uh, our attention need not only be on the white Christian majority, it can be how people are leading uh, when they are on the margins. Mm -hmm. Jamar, how do you feel like, I, I, I'm assuming you probably know, but like I woke up this morning, I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see Lecrae trending, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming you, you know what I'm talking about. Louis yes, Giglio sir. says, uh, people, I, I, I don't even want to, he, I, he says something basically like, you don't want to say white privilege, you want to call it white blessing right. or something like that. Do you feel like in this moment, like, do, do you feel like you, you are called to speak? Like you need to, 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 to speak about what is happening, and even in that instance, even in that uh, dialogue that they were having, I think it was Lecrae, Louis Giglio, and then the owner of uh, Chick Fil A or something like that. And, yeah. they, and, yeah. and then I, I woke up to that, and I was thinking, "Oh my gosh, I don't understand why, why would he say that? What is happening?" And a, a, a little caveat here: I I really do feel for Lecrae because he's talking to these two men, and he they're they're wanting to have dialogue, and and so I don't think that he was being a terrible person or, you know, not, not addressing the situation. He's hearing this for the first time and then just trying to have a conversation. So maybe right. I'm even misunderstanding that, but what do you feel when you, when you see something like that, what is, what do you feel like you need to do or, or don't say, or do say, or what, what, what is it do you feel what, what's going on with you when you yeah. wake up to something like that? So you said you save the juicy stuff to the end of the show. <laughs> Keep them hanging. I got you. Um, <laughs> it was wild, man. This thing, uh, it started with a tweet by Nicola, Men Nicola Menzi, and I encourage everybody to, to follow her um, journalistic publication, Faithfully Magazine. And um, uh, someone from the Washington Post picked it up. And then next thing I know, there's a Newsweek article about it this morning. As we record, um, Jamel Hill, uh, formerly of ESPN, now at the Atlantic, I believe she picked it up. 
all these black Christians, um, including very insightful and prominent voices like uh, Anthea Butler and Shaniqua Walker Barnes, who are both um, theologians and religious studies folks, it, it, it was wild because what the man said was so appalling. It felt like yeah. whiplash, right? Like, so he, he, he was basically, it, it, there's two terms that I think come into play with this incident is um, white fragility and white privilege. And what Giglio was trying to do from what I understand was say that this phrase, white privilege, is so triggering. I mean, it's a conversation non-starter for a lot of white people. That instead of using that term, you know, we need to think of like it as 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 white blessing, which is a terrible choice of words because that means it essentially means that slavery was a blessing, right. and 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 that some somehow God gave the thumbs up to this horrible institution of race based chattel slavery, which again I don't think was Giglio's intention, but Jonathan Merritt said something. Jonathan Merritt, the the writer. Um, the white guy who grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention said something I think so insightful. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, most white Christian leaders are two or three good questions away from revealing white supremacist views. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's so in-depth. And the analogy I think of is like whenever, whenever I call like tech support for a computer problem, I know just enough of the lingo and just enough of the right terms to make the person on the other end think I know what I'm talking about. But then when they really start bringing in their expertise and the terms and the things that I should do, I'm like totally lost. Yeah. My understanding is an inch deep, right? And so I think that's what happened with Louis Giglio. But the other thing, um, the other term that comes into play is uh, white fragility. And the reason he was trying to rephrase white privilege was essentially because of white fragility, which, you know, in a nutshell, is the defensiveness that white people exhibit when confronted with their whiteness. So I said earlier, whiteness thrives on invisibility. That's why many of us don't know a lot of the racial history of the U.S. It's, it's invisible, it's hidden. And then um, with white fragility, when you actually highlight the fact that a, you are white, and B, you get certain advantages because of that. People who are used to not thinking about race, not thinking about their whiteness, react very negatively. So I think that's what was going on. And um, the problem is, it felt like whiplash, like back to like 2015, when people were, were really, really new to this conversation. And um, in this racial moment, it was like, okay, maybe a few people are getting it. And then he just pulled us all the way back to reality that, like, no, we got a really long way to go. And these statements or these tweets in support of racial justice and Black Lives Matter are just the barest minimum. And when you really get down to critically analyzing what people think and believe about race and theology, there's a lot more work to do. Do you think there's a, a dangerous amount of, I don't even know the right way to phrase this, but you can tell that Lecrae is put under scrutiny for that. And then we get into the broader thing of the purity test and the religious nature and the, the real, this, you know, who your allies with and not, you seem to, you and Lecrae seem to be people who are very comfortable. In, uh, I don't know how to speak it, uh, this language exactly right, but is there a pressure from, from more aggressive points of view that's putting 
people like Lecrae in very tough positions. How do how do you see that? Like you're over here mixing it up with us and the Christians and the white Christians, but you should have already written us off and be on down the road. You know, how does that feel from your point of view? Yeah, I think that's a very perceptive question. Um, so there's a couple of things that that are create a tension, a tension, which is um, on the one hand, you sort of have to demonstrate as a black person your solidarity with other black people. And, you know, in a sense, that's healthy, right? And uh, should be expected. In another sense, it, it can have a very negative side to it, which is like, uh, you know, the great woke wars, you know, who's the mm-hmm. wokest, whatever. Uh, but I don't think that's, you know, always the case. I just think that's something to be aware of. Uh, so, so there's this tension to demonstrate solidarity with black people, which means voicing our concerns in an unapologetic manner, right? And not softening it right. for because of white fragility. Uh, so I think some folks who are responding to Lecrae from, from that perspective. At the same time, um, just Christianity in general is very countercultural, right? So even in expressing one's unabashed views, you speak the truth in love. And so what does that look like in that moment? Love can be confrontational. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people were calling for or looking for in that moment was for someone in that moment to correct and say, hey, this phrase white blessing is not appropriate to describe what you what I think you're trying to say. Um, but I also think it's also uh, we, we should be aware that um, many times folks won't understand Christians who are patient and long suffering with people who espouse very different views. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's a fear factor in the sense that sometimes it looks like patience and long suffering, but really it's it's a a, a fear to confront. Uh, so that's sometimes the case, but 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 at other times, it can be the willingness to confront, but also leaving space and time for people to change. And that's just something I don't think the world's ever going to perfectly understand uh, because it's 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 supernatural. It's not natural for us to to treat one another that way, but it's also our only hope of real um, cross-racial and interracial solidarity at the end of the day that anyone, including people of color, uh, can can change their minds and grow and expand. And that um, even while we, we speak the truth in love and uh, confront people with the truth, we can hold out, hold space for them to change. So... There's a lot more into that. I don't want to. I don't want to at all hint that um, uh, black people need to be uh, continually, continuously brutalized by words or theology that dehumanizes us. All I'm saying is that there's going to be a certain le- a certain point where um, what we're doing in maintaining faith in Christianity, maintaining faith in Christ, and uh, attempting to still have uh, positive relationships with white people. That's just not going to make sense from a worldly perspective. That's very um, well put. I really appreciate your clear, you know, e- e- explanation of that because I find that to be a tricky territory. And the whole thing here 
is uh, I feel that there's been so much deconstruction and people that have like not walked away from Christianity but done a lot of deconstruction. There's the rise of the nuns, and there's a lot of talk about this whole territory still being religious territory with anti-racism as a religion, and there's Christianity as the religion here, and the interface of all that is uh, is is very interesting or confusing. Yeah. Earlier when you were talking about uh, the <laughs> the the new people that are just new to this game that almost sounds like they're new converts to this whole thing so you know we're all religious like people the way i see it and we're trying to recalibrate in this in this time so you spending time with us doing that has been is very helpful and i I, I very much appreciate it yeah and and i there's so many questions i want to ask you so we're probably gonna have to have you come back because i promise you i i have a list of questions that i i mean I've never thought about black women in slavery and Mm -hmm. you, you you bring up this idea about that. Not only did they have to do productive labor, but reproductive labor. And I just started thinking about that in my context. I do not know what it's like to be a black person, but I do know what it's like to be a brother, a son and a father. And those things, like, I'm like, it's just waking up the whole world to me. And so, I mean, we'd love to have you back, Jamar, because I got a lot of questions. But before you go, the last thing I want to talk about is you have been working with uh, The the Witness. It's a black Christian collective. And I I want you to tell us just a little bit about that before you go. Yeah, a couple of things. Number one, I want to be um, very clear that uh, when I say, you know, there's a certain sense uh, that, that what Christians do is going to be unintelligible, I don't at all mean to say that that non-Christians or people of other faiths aren't doing good justice work. That's, that's not at all what I want Earth. to say. So Earth. just want to be clear about that. Uh, I learned probably the most from non-Christians about racial justice, and, uh, and I'm very respectful of that. Um the other item, yeah, the witness. So the witness is a multimedia faith-based uh, 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 company that I helped start a few years ago, and you can visit our website at thewitnessbcc.com. And but the new venture I'm working on is called the Witness Foundation, and we're trying to raise a million dollars annually to train the next generation of Black Christian leaders. And our goal, if we reach that that fundraising goal is to have a cohort of 20 black Christian leaders in various sectors from law to health to education to church ministry. And we fund uh, each of those cohort members uh, at $50,000 a year for two years. And the idea is the racial wealth gap affects not just like your ability to get a college education or buy a house, but your ability to do ministry and to do justice in the world. And so often, black Christians, we are struggling uh, in the nonprofit world because we don't have the same social networks or economic networks uh, to raise funds. And so the Witness Foundation, you can visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co. You can make a one-time gift or a recurring gift, and you can also find out more about the work we're doing. We're just getting started. We haven't um, funded a cohort yet, but if you are looking to get engaged in racial justice, that's one way you can do it. Awesome. All right. Jamar Tisby, you can, hey, you can find Jamar at jamartisby.com. Uh, the color of compromise. You got a new book coming out in early. I mean, <laughs> I'm worried now that you might, what's, what does that mean for 20, your new book's going to come out in 2021. What does that mean for 2022? You might, <laughs> you might be really more prophetic than you ever thought. So I oh, thank you so much. I couldn't, I mean, your brain and the work that you have done is really impactful for me personally. So Jamar, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it, man. And, and seriously, we'd love to have you back and talk even more. I got a billion more questions. So thank you. Would love to do it. Appreciate y'all's hospitality. All right. Thanks, man. 
Take care. He's so great. Yeah. I'm telling you, his brain is really good. I'm telling you, it's, it's really interesting watching this. I mean, the, the, the stuff that I don't ever think about, like, I, I wish I'd have, I should have asked more questions about it. Well, while we were on. I am sorry if I talked so much that you didn't get to ask your questions. I never you really did good. You, no, you did good. I just wish, yeah, I wish <laughs> I would have in, inserted myself more. I just, but I, I mean, it, he's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is great. Keep this, like, and we're rolling. I had a story that popped in mind that I would have told, but for time. Um, but I, I was thinking about when I worked at Domino's Pizza, and uh, when he was talking about how it's all, it, it, I can't remember exactly what triggered it, but it's it's like it's all there, but it's not come to the surface, and you don't know it. And that's kind of where we're at, especially with like all the Trump voters. It's like they they're not going to show up in polls because it. Yeah. The, there's stuff that you're just not going to to show, but the people really know it's there. But sometimes you don't see this there. I was working at Domino's Pizza, and it was like we had about half black and white people that worked there. And our manager was a black lady named Katisha. And so the, there was a long time, two people that had been working there in delivery. And that was just like when I got there, I thought this is a good little family. This, is, this place has got a good vibe to it. I liked all the people. I thought it was fun. And they all seemed to get along really well. And then one day, this uh, delivery driver named Jackie – she came she came in and she was in some bad mood for some reason and our manager was super nice tish and she they they got into it for something that she had to correct her for or something and then it just erupted from there and Jackie started saying all this stuff and uh she said she's like well fuck you I quit and sh- you know sh- started shooting her birds in her face and she goes I know you didn't like black people she goes yeah and she called her the n word and then just boom and she oh, wow. and was like oh so that was just what they knew about each other for they knew it. a year. Yeah, the, the, I didn't know each, it. each of them. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought that these people get along great. <laughs> and, but as yeah, soon as there, even... as soon as it came, it just came. But it was there the whole time, and that's what this yeah. whole thing reminds me. of. It's like you suppress all those historical stories. You don't talk about it. It's there, and it's people know it's there. Like you can ignore it if you want to, but many and most people are feeling it, even if it's completely yeah. unmentioned. You know, so that's that's the weird thing. Like, it's almost seems to me that all this that's happening now is basically inevitable. Already was there. It's not like it just, you know, it didn't just get whipped up all of a sudden. It can't. Yeah, it has to be for some reason. So I did have a lot of questions because you kept talking. So I mm-hmm. didn't get to talk about St. Philip's Church that he talks about in the documentary. Where well, tell us about they, it. They just wanted some equal footing, and the the other white churches. I think they were Presbyterian. I might be messing this up. Um, wouldn't let them, just wouldn't let them. There would not be a black church without racism, which in my mind and the limited education I was given, I just thought, oh yeah, uh, white people want to have their church. I mean, growing up in South Carolina, I thought white people want to have their church and black people want to have their church. They did, that's just what they want must be. Mm-hmm. And I did, it, it was not explained the reasons why. And then once, once again, like, I, I mean, I know I mentioned this during the podcast well, well during the interview. I mean, I can't believe that black Christians maintain their faith and push forward. I mean, that's just, I, me, I would have given up. Oh, well, like that's what I'm had, saying. Had, oh, yeah, we'd give up like I mean, crazy. <laughs> I would not have had that fortitude. I would have not had that bravery or that, that trust in God or that faith. And, and for them to keep pushing forward, even in the, the unbelievable amount of oppression, everything, uh, I'm, uh, he talks about the Haitian slave rebellion, which I've never heard in my life. You ever heard of the Haitian slave rebellion from eight, uh, 1781 no. to 1804? It never heard about that, have you? No. It, I mean, they did it. I mean, uh, if you were a slave, 
what's the most heroic, amazing thing you could think of? That some other slaves revolted and won their freedom or, or, or did a rebellion. And it was hard and it was dangerous and bad. But I mean, all the things that he's talking about, it's just so amazing. Like the, the work that Jamar has done is just, it, it really is helpful to me to see the world clearly. Like I, that, that's mm-hmm. what I feel like I've been, and, and no sense uh, am I trying to, you know, be a victim here at all. I'm just saying like, I have not been told the world clearly. Yeah. I, I haven't. Well, your point I, about I how seen... we watch the TV is very right. Like, you, like we watch Law and Order because it's got a pedophile and fuck him. Right. Not this is what yeah, we're yeah. all. That's oh, he's easier. bad. Oh, yeah. I can watch that because I'm not. I'm not yeah. a pedophile. I'm right. not a serial killer. But when it, when it when it actually touches your heart a little bit, wait a minute. Let's just yeah, avoid I that. Hear my, I did hear my grandfather say some really bad racial stuff. I did. You know, wait, my family member. Wait a minute. Not very long ago, my family. Uh, really did bad stuff yeah. to black people. I mean, like when, when you go there, you can't, it's, it's harder to watch. And so that's, that's the thing. Like the, the idea, Louis Giglio, what, what in the world would you let white people off for on white privilege? They, you don't, I don't, the, what, what I don't understand about that is you have white privilege. Mm-hmm. Like you have it, you are getting it. Like I am getting it. I am receiving, it. I have it. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as going, wait a minute. Yeah. But you know, she's really hot. She's really hot. And so she should feel like she can't it, wait. She gets to a lady that's really hot or a guy that's really hot that works out all the time. He's going, and, and I'm, this is a really bad analogy, but the idea that they would just act so ugly to everybody because they have something like I have my white privilege. So now that I, that it's being brought to my attention because I, I was unaware I didn't even, I, I, I've been lazy and and uh, not really done any type of work at all to realize my state in life. Um, I, I think that's the thing that is really amazing about what Jamar is doing. He's bringing it to me in a way that's super historical. That's giving me unbelievable amounts of inf- information. And that's yeah. why I did. I think of entertainment as super high. So I I said that what, you know, the, the uh, color of compromise is entertaining, but in the sense of it's hard to do a documentary and it capture you mm-hmm. and you can't look away and you're watching it. And so, yeah, I, I just, I mean, what, what he's doing and what a lot of folks are doing is just uh, phenomenal. I'm glad he gave us our, his time, but I'm being changed now. I wish I would have been changed earlier. Yes, and that's, like, but that's where we're at that you, it, that we never, I never even knew I should be because that's what I'm saying. I, my, my high school was 30 or 40% black. I, I grew up around black people my entire life. It's just what you do. But that, but like you said, I think you brought this up. That's not, it's not good enough that you just, you know, what, what, what we've been saying is not good enough. Well, you have what to change your underlying thinking is the problem with stuff. It changes slow. I can't just go, oh, I got to get with NASCAR and yeah. <laughs> just go right. along. You can't, that doesn't mean anything if you just switch this week anyway. Obviously, you know that. So the historical stuff isn't going to change anything today, but it will change your underlying thinking. If you, you, you have to change how you think on a fundamental level by absorbing new thoughts. And then the output down the road will be a better output. You can, you know, but all also we're in a moment where no, no, the impatience has stacked up enough to where, uh, also we got to have change now. So that's the violent part. And the, you know, I mean, violent in a broad way, like the volatile part of it all is you've had time, and you haven't, so we're going to have to increase the intensity. But still, real change will still come after you absorb more foundational kind of thinking that way. But 
Do you have any other like questions you want to rattle off well, that you have? No, if you haven't written down, I'd like to hear. Imagine Louis Giglio, if he was just going, man, the church is really screwed up. We have really messed up. We have hurt people. We have denied the truth. We, I mean, like, could, couldn't he just take this moment instead of what, what he did was cater to the white people to yes. try and help them yeah. understand? Right. You don't have to do that. Let's well, just call it out. He I mean, might have to the, do that. The one question I have <laughs> Uh, we were talking about this before Jamar came on that we didn't get into, and he probably would have, you know, laughed it off because he's humble. But I mean, what he's he might be doing the work of Paul, calling out Peter, right? Like, like wait, what? What are you talking about? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, wait, you, you know, Peter would, you know, would only, you know, he would sit with uh, the Jews to eat or whatever because he didn't want to look like, you know, because of a race of people or mm-hmm. what? Yeah, uh, the the idea here is that Jamar is really brave and i mean it would be way easier for jamar and probably could be more in some ways financially beneficial or whatever it might be to avoid some of these things and yeah. he's taking a real stand to say things in a real way that are very accessible very i, I can understand this i'm not the smartest person in the world and the, all the work that he's done and the histo- history of it and everything is so amazing it really does feel like uh mm-hmm. new are we in a new stage of wait a minute the the bible's not done the there are disciples now there are people that are doing Good real point. work and maybe there could be some real growth but it's it's hard i mean it it what what jamar's living through right now is not easy and it's uh, i i mean i, I it's me cool. yeah, i'm ignorant don't even really know what to do yeah. I, i'm just you know, I, it's I, that, easy to identify him as very good in my book because you can I can imagine how some people are thin skinned, fra- fragile, white fragility is the word for it, but just where they're threatened easily and afraid. And there's people speaking to them in very harsh ways that are just going to harden them more. And that works and maybe is fine and necessary, but it is going to harden other people. But Jamar. You, if 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 you're reacting to him negatively, then I mean you're you're crazy. You know what I mean? Like he's oh. actually really, really being patient and good and kind. And like if you're having negative right. reactions and to Jamar Tisby, that's what he said. He's even fighting his own impatience. Yeah, I mean he's he's brilliant. Right. He's he's giving you re. I mean, oh well, let's look at the facts. Let's look. He's giving it to you. Yeah, it's, it's a lot he of patience the for work him of saying it. I mean, it's just. Right. I, I mean, I couldn't. I, I, it, it it's amazing. I'm 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 in awe of all the work in his brain. I really am. So, anyway, all right, let's get off of here. Mm-hmm. I know we got to go. Have a good anything, week. anything we need to announce or anything? Join the BC Club. Uh, go to Mary Supply if you want some uh, wonderful adult products without all the porn. And uh, we're all about marriages. If your marriage is uh, you want to spice it up a little bit, go ahead and do that. Yep, we got a new Emory album out. It hit the Billboard charts, so which is nice. It seems like the silliest thing in the world these days to have an album yeah. and it release. And I mean, this just seems so t- relatively trivial. But we did release an album uh, last week that we're proud of and is doing well. It Since, charted. It charted. Yeah, it did good. Our Spotify's done really well. That's neat to think that's old you as we are, are but awesome. we've grown a lot. On the last, just from doing the podcast and stuff like that. So I don't know how all this works together, the black church and Emory's music and marriage supply, but here we are. So those are the things we're into, and this is what we're up to on this Tuesday. So if you join BC Club this week, um, the BC Clubbers get an email that I write, and I think it's pretty fun. And a lot of the BC Clubbers read it. That's what I'm pretty impressed by. High open rate. Toby's very proud of it. uh, Very high. I am proud of it. I'm, well, I'm proud that the BC Clubbers would actually read it and even respond. 
And so that's pretty cool. This week, I'm not writing it because I'm going on vacation tomorrow. I am taking the time off. I'm, I'm going to tr really try to not to look at my phone. I'm going to really try not to answer emails. I'm going to be present with my family this one time, and then that's it. That's all they get from I, 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 I mean, my kids, get, my kids get the next two days, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe three, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I, I ain't ever given them. I will be not enough. be present for my family again. That'll be I did plenty. It. If you give them three, three days. Three's enough. Yeah. I think they'll be so, fine. They have to be. Good yeah. God. What, how many? They need four days of me being present? Ugh. I, I agree. That's what I think about Ugh. this pandemic. And, I mean, it can't be. It feels. I mean, it can't be right that I'm around my kids 24 hours a day. That There's no oh, that hunter like gatherer. I mean, if I was hunting and gathering, I'd have had to go do something. I mean, there's no there's I no know. situation where I'm supposed to be around my kids 24 hours a day. It cannot be. Dude, I, that's funny you say that. I've been seriously like thinking, man, it would be so awesome if I had to go kill my, our food. <laughs> I could not define the food just to get the hell away from Just to from get a little family. peace and quiet. <laughs> I'll go kill an animal just to get away from my family. <laughs> yeah. Sitting still in the woods for two hours would, yeah. would be oh, the best God part. Heaven. Align yourself with the free Take my place 